X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, July 2nd. Have you subscribed, by the way? We'd love you to. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. If you've already subscribed, you can ask a friend to join in. You can find us on your favorite platform, or if you want to find us across platforms, you can go to Linktree slash The Local Portland. Today, back in the day, July 2nd, 1964, U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and signed the Voting Rights Act into law. And today, back in the day, the first major gay rights victory in Oregon, the legislative repeal of the sodomy law on July 2nd, 1971. The repeal wasn't as much due to a bunch of activism as it was part of a general reform of criminal codes taking place at the time across the nation in various states. In fact, when the Idaho legislature realized it had rescinded its sodomy law in 1971, it quickly readopted it. And then in 2003, finally, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the last sodomy law still remaining on the books. Last month was Pride Month. We hope people didn't miss that. Portland was the first city in Oregon to adopt civil rights protections for gays and lesbians first ordinance championed by Commissioner Connie McCready, who later became mayor, and her granddaughter, Laura Gunderson, is now editorial page editor of the Oregonian newspaper. It's a small town after all. Today on The Local, we'll start with a quick six news headlines. We'll have an in-depth look at COVID-19 data with Ben DeJarnet of Bridgeliner, and Emily Gilliland will interview Clark County Councilor Temple Lentz. They're going to talk about allyship and moving forward on racial justice one day at a time. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. We are down to the wire on ballot measures qualifying for the November ballot. In fact, the deadline for submitting valid signatures is today. Here's what we know. As we reported earlier in the week, shrooms are on the ballot. Initiative to legalize controlled medical psilocybin, the chemical in magic mushrooms, has gathered more than 160,000 signatures. Activists say psilocybin has therapeutic purposes, including treating depression and anxiety. The initiative would legalize mushrooms for therapeutic purposes in a controlled setting with a licensed vendor. Nearly 107,000 of the signatures turned were deemed valid. And that initiative will be heading to Oregon voters this November. In other drug initiative news, Initiative Petition 44 has also submitted more than 160,000 signatures and announced they have enough to qualify for the November ballot. BELD is a drug treatment funding measure. If voters approve the ballot initiative, it would decriminalize personal, non-commercial possession of most drugs. According to the Washington County District Attorney's Office, who is opposed to the change, it would downgrade a possession of a controlled substance charge for what the DA's office calls dangerous drugs, including heroin, methamphetamines, or ecstasy. Note, though, that manufacturing, dealing, and delivering large quantities of drugs would still be a crime. And another ballot initiative we're watching, this is the redistricting ballot initiative. They are going to court. Initiative Petition 57 proposes amending the state's constitution to create an independent citizens' redistricting commission. So no longer would the state legislature, the secretary of state, or the governor be involved in the redistricting. You'd have an equal number of Democratic, Republican, and non-affiliated citizen commissioners drawing the lines. They spent a bunch of money sending out mail to get people to gather the signatures. They are apparently, though, falling short. And they have asked a federal court to order Oregon Secretary of State Bev Clarno to adjust the rules for ballot initiative petitions for the November 2020 election. They're arguing it's nearly impossible to gather nearly 150,000 signatures by today during the pandemic, unless apparently you're a ballot initiative seeking to decriminalize drugs. Today, we want to go over hospitalization rates in Oregon. When the lockdown started in March, the idea was not to wait out the eradication of COVID-19, but to slow the spread so that hospitals would not be overwhelmed. 
Oregon has done a very good job of this. About 12% of Oregon COVID-19 patients have been hospitalized since March. And that might seem like a lot, but it also means 88% of the people who contract the virus recover without spending any time in the hospital. There are currently 149 patients hospitalized with confirmed or suspected cases of the coronavirus. 25 of those people are currently requiring ventilators. As the number of tests has gone up, the infection rate has held pretty steady between 3 and 4%. And it's a reminder the virus will continue to spread until there is a vaccine. The numbers will rise. An important thing to keep track of is if the hospitalization rate starts to rise and if the death toll starts to climb. Oregon Governor Kate Brown has said recently that she does not want to impose another lockdown, but she will if she feels like the numbers are getting out of control. Wear your mask, wash your hands, sneeze into your elbow, don't hug grandma. You know the drill. The Portland City Council has declared a climate emergency. I declare a climate emergency! The resolution reads, the Portland City Council declares that a human-made climate emergency threatens our city, our region, our state, our nation, humanity, and the natural world. That such an emergency calls for an immediate mobilization effort, initiating greater action, resources, and collaboration that prioritizes frontline communities to restore a safe climate. The resolution emphasizes that certain vulnerable communities, communities of color, immigrants, refugees, low-income individuals, workers, people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness, are on the front lines of climate emergency will be disproportionately impacted. Among the 30 commitments included in the resolution, a new target for carbon emissions. By 2030, the city is aiming to be 50% below what the region's emissions levels were in the 1990s. Pledging to enhance the tree canopy, particularly in East Portland, where the tree canopy covers only about one-fifth of the area. Working with TriMet and Metro to get free year-round transit passes for Portlanders 18 years old and younger. And asking PGE and Pacific Corps to deliver renewable energy to all Portland residents and businesses by 2030. And we shouldn't forget the elephant in the emissions room, transportation and freeway expansions. The declaring of a climate emergency came hours after Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and Commissioner Chloe Udaley revoked their support from the I-5 Rose Quarter project. And more on the city council, they're setting a date to vote on the controversial infill plan. After being rescheduled due to the pandemic, the council will vote on the latest version of the residential infill project, originally drafted under Mayor Charlie Hales in 2015. Since Hales first directed the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability to undertake the project, the Oregon legislature changed the state zoning laws to require most cities, including Portland, to allow more housing and neighborhoods zoned for single-family homes. The plan before the council allows for four units on virtually every lot, which is more than now required by the state. That project has divided the city. Supporters argue it will reverse decades of discriminatory zoning restrictions by allowing the construction of lower-priced housing in neighborhoods where lower-income residents, especially people of color, cannot afford to live. Opponents say it will encourage the demolition of existing homes without guaranteeing that many families can afford any replacement housing built and that it'll just be a giveaway to developers. The council is going to hold a session to vote on seven proposed amendments to the RIP, the Residential Infill Project, on July 9th, with a final vote scheduled August 5th. The ACLU is suing the Portland police, saying officers attacked journalists at protests. Attorneys working with the American Civil Liberties Union filed a class action lawsuit against the city of Portland and the Portland Police Bureau and other local law enforcement agencies. The lawsuit claims the Portland police are targeting and attacking journalists and legal observers covering the protests. The suit claims police have tear-gassed, pepper-sprayed, beaten, and arrested journalists, observers, and other neutral bystanders documenting the police's response to the protests. There have been multiple reports of violence against journalists laid out along with the lawsuit. Ted Wheeler's office declined to comment. The lawsuit seeks an order declaring the police's actions, quote, unconstitutional and prohibiting them from targeting and attacking journalists again, end quote. On Tuesday night, three more journalists were arrested at a protest at Union Hall. 
Police declared the protest a riot and then went around tear-gassing the crowd. Reporter Corey Elia was arrested after he identified a cop by name on camera. Leslie McClam and another independent journalist who tweets under the Portland Independent Documentarians were taken into custody during the alleged riot. And with some more data in, there is little evidence the protests are leading to an increase in COVID-19 cases. Experts are saying that we would already be seeing the jumps in protesting populations if a spike were coming. Some speculate the protests actually seem to lead to a net increase in social distancing as more people who did not protest decided to stay off the streets entirely. Health officials are still investigating case surges in different states. More data may come in, but experts believe that if the protests did have a big impact on cases, stronger signs would already be apparent. Studies say the outdoor nature of protests, as well as wearing masks, probably do help stem the transmission of the virus. And maybe this counts as good news? Apparently, we need more lawyers. The Oregon law students who graduated this year will not need to take the bar exam to practice law in Oregon. The Oregon Supreme Court narrowly decided to waive the July bar exam for 2020 graduates of Oregon's three law schools. On May 15th, the Oregon State Board of Bar Examiners, which administered the exam, said it was determined to move forward with the test. The deans of the U of O, Lewis and Clark, and Willamette University Law Schools requested diploma privilege, which allows graduates to become members of the bar without passing the bar exam. Among people concerned about the waiver, a bunch of members of the Oregon Bar, among some people probably pleased about it, the people won't have to take the bar exam. Both the folks who would have passed it, and probably also the people who wouldn't have. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Each day, more and more data is available to mark our progress with controlling COVID-19. Here's Ben DeJarnett of Bridgeliner on how to make sense of it all. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning, Emily. It's so wonderful. I, I get to see you this week over Zoom. This is so cool. I know, the magic of uh, <laughs> conference calls. The magic of technology. Oh my goodness, we have lots to catch up on. In the past few weeks, we've seen COVID-19 case numbers in Oregon and nationwide increase at a significant rate. How should we interpret these case counts, Ben? Ben? Yeah, we've been trying, trying to dig into the numbers and kind of understand, you know, recognizing that if, if every week is a five-alarm fire, then eventually nothing is a five-alarm fire, right? So, you know, trying to help people understand, like, Yes, the numbers are going up. Yes, that's reason to be concerned. But how concerned should we be? Um, you know, where how are we doing compared to other states, compared to other counties? Um, uh, and kind of as 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 Portland and as the rest of the state continue to to loosen restrictions, what should we be watching for? So, um, you know, I think the number that gets reported most often thrown around is just that kind of top line number of people who test positive and certainly that's something to watch but Mm -hmm. um you know it's one of these things it's become really politicized you've got president trump and and republicans just saying oh you know it's all about testing right it's the only reason we're identifying more cases is because we're testing more people that's clearly not true right like yes testing is a part of it um but the case counts are going up faster than uh, than, than testing. So, you know, the number that, that epidemiologists are looking at more often is the percentage of people who are testing positive on a given day or a given week. So, um, you know, just to use round numbers, if a hundred people a day get tested and, uh, one day, three of them test positive and the next day, 
five tests positive and the next day seven tests positive, right? That's a pretty clear sign um, that the outbreak is getting worse. And so that's probably the the single number that gives you the clearest picture. But um, you know, I think one takeaway from from talking with Multnomah County health officials is that that all these numbers need context, that there's not a single um, uh, data point that's going to say like, hey, things are getting worse, things are getting better. You know, it's, you know, even with the positive test rate, um, they pointed out that that when hospitals started doing elective surgeries again, um, they were testing a lot of uh, a lot of patients before they would get those elective surgeries just to make sure they didn't have COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd already been pre-screened. They didn't have symptoms. So those, those types of people were very unlikely to test positive. So when you're testing those types of patients, you're, you're probably going to see the positive taste test rate come down. Um, on the other hand, if you're doing a really good job at contact tracing, which is something we've talked a lot about, right? Something that the counties are trying to do better. Um, if they're identifying outbreaks at, at churches or, or distribution centers and they're testing all the people that have had exposure, you might actually see the positive test rate go up and that could be a good thing, right? It means that you're you're identifying the cases that are out there, you're testing the right people, the people who have been exposed to the virus. So it's um, kind of a long-winded way of saying that there's no easy answer, but uh, you know, we should be kind of skeptical and, and, and you know, think through the numbers we're seeing and, and, and look to our public health officials to kind of understand what they mean in, in the right context. What's your key takeaway? How should we be um, digesting all this data? Yeah, I think my key takeaway is that, that we're, we might be closer than we think we are to, to really f- not only flattening the curve, but bending the curve mm. here in Oregon. Um, you know, I think one of the, the risks of I think largely the news media that that reports you know record number of new cases and mm-hmm. it makes it seem like things are getting much worse week over week over week is that I think it can contribute to kind of a an attitude that like oh, nothing matters right like right. I've done this yeah. stay at home order I'm wearing my mask I, my neighbor and, and it's still spreading so you know screw it right um, and I think the reality is that we are seeing numbers go up slowly and um if that remains the case then then getting 10 percent more people to wear masks being a little bit better collectively about um socializing outdoors instead of indoors like those little things could actually make a difference to where you know the average the average person who gets infected uh, uh infects less than one new person on average and that's when you start to see numbers go down so um yeah, I, th- I think that's that's one reason why we should kind of have a, a you know a thoughtful approach about how we report these numbers and how alarmed we are now. And I think the other is that um, you know we don't want to be the the kid who cried wolf um, too many times over the summer when we get to October or November when I think there really is a a, a real risk of a second spike. And we saw that in, in the 1918 flu. I, I think a lot of epidemiologists. Uh, and health officials expect that, that as people are spending more time indoors and maybe get a little bit um, laxer on social distancing and we lift restrictions that we could see a second spike. And I, I think we need to have, uh, the media needs to have, public officials need to have credibility um, when they kind of ring that alarm bell if, if we have to in, in the fall. And part of that starts now by being kind of honest and um, 
transparent about about the numbers and what we're seeing. Yeah. So we've got the daily confirmed case count. We've got the test positivity rate, which I think you made a really good point about, you know, seeing because we have heard more in the news over the last couple of weeks that, oh, the, the rise in cases is just because we're testing more folks. So getting a sense of the proportion of folks who are testing positive per the number of tests is an important thing to look at. We've got the rate of untraced cases. We know that contact tracing is critical. And if we're starting to see more and more folks where you can't trace it back to a particular interaction, then that might drive the state to be considering more stay-at-home orders or smaller gatherings. We know that number of hospitalizations is critical, knowing the capacity of our state or other geographic areas to handle an increase. Um, The death rate, of course, is critical. I want to talk a little bit about even disaggregating that data, though, and looking at demographics. Why is it critical to look at um, the many identities that we can see in these positive test cases? Why should we care about the demographics? Yeah, I think it helps us understand who's most at risk and why. Um, I, I think it's a pretty clear picture now that uh, you know, people who are unable to take time off of work, who are not in jobs where they can work from home, um, who work at distribution centers or, or food processing centers, um, places where there's lots of bodies in enclosed space, uh, they are the most likely to get sick with this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that they are disproportionately people of color, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think sometimes this gets a little bit lost in the conversation that it's, you know, people say like, oh, you know, it's um, uh, uh, black American, Hispanic Americans are more likely to get COVID and they don't take the next step of explaining why. And I think that can be risky if you then think, oh, well, you know, uh, me, Ben, I'm a white person, like I'm not at risk of COVID, but the reality is it's, you know, the risk is about exposure and, you know, the, the, the reason that black Americans, Hispanic Americans are exposed more often are, are you know, many of these factors that the black, black Lives Matter protesters are, are talking about at the same time, right? Kind of these, mm-hmm. these, the structural racism that, um, uh, that is the reason they're more likely to work at a Amazon distribution center or, um, to not have health benefits and the ability to take time off or, um, you know, to live in dense housing and, and not in Laurelhurst and other neighborhoods where you've got space to kind of social distance. So um, uh, I think that's a critical piece of it. And connecting those dots, uh, people with, we're already seeing in other states, people with the privilege who, who could socially isolate um, are, are now kind of negating their privilege with this kind of sense of invincibility. And uh, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the frat bros in Mississippi get all the attention, but right, that's, they're kind of the, the you know, the tip of that iceberg, right? These people who have every opportunity to protect themselves because they feel like they're not vulnerable to the disease. Uh, they're going to go out and throw parties and we're seeing they're the ones who get sick. Um, and the reality is that if someone in that fraternity has a pre-existing medical condition, you know, they're just as likely as anyone else to, to die from COVID. Um, you know, so I think I think that's where really digging into the data, understanding both who's most likely to get infected and why, and then who's most likely to die will help us make good decisions and hopefully help people understand that this really is a collective effort um, mm-hmm. that's going to 
going to take everyone, um, you know, continuing to be part of that solution. Yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. And then where do folks go to, to subscribe to Bridgeliner? Yeah, bridgeliner.com. We'll be in your inbox tomorrow morning. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Emily. See ya. Again, that's Ben DeJarnett with Bridgeliner. Bridgeliner is an email newsletter all about Portland, delivered fresh to your inbox. You can read it now at bridgeliner.com. That's also where you can sign up to get that newsletter in your inbox. The Clark County Council has recently been in the news after Chair Quiring said she didn't believe systemic racism existed in the county. Next up, we have an interview with Councilor Temple Lentz on that interaction and what leadership for racial justice can look like. Welcome back, Councilor Lentz. Good morning. Good morning. It's so wonderful to hear your voice. Welcome back to X-Ray. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Listeners may remember that you used to cover news from the Couve. It's true. It's been a while. <laughs> it hasn't. Today you have more news for us from the Couve. You've been involved in the community as a volunteer and as a board member. What inspired you to run as a county counselor? Um, so I ran in 2018, so I'm in the middle of my second year. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to that, I had worked on write, writing our new count, our home rule charter to change our, our system of government here in the county. Uh, to something a little bit more representative and a little bit more modern. And going through that process of working on uh, drafting that charter and then putting it forward to the voters and uh, selling it, and it passed uh, with a large majority, kind of made me more interested in continuing that work. I wanted to run to help implement the charter and keep Clark County, ideally, moving a little bit forward. Mm, I love that. Sometimes we create change from the inside. Sometimes we we push on change from the outside. What has been what has been uh, what have been some of your proudest accomplishments in your term as a county councilor so far? You know, um, one of the things that I am learning is that government does take a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody, one of our state senators here, told me that some of the it wasn't so much advice, but one of the best comments that she got was uh, from a mentor when she first ran was that if you really want to achieve anything in government and elected office, you need to be prepared to stick it out for a while Mm. because the wheels do move slowly. Um, So what I'm really working on and what I'm proud of being able to bring to the council is currently I'm the only Democrat on a a board of five. And uh, one of our members did recently switch just this year from Republican to nonpartisan, but otherwise, it's a much more conservative leaning board. And uh, I'm able to bring the perspective, a, a more progressive perspective to the board mm. and help move our conversations in that direction. Uh, so some of the things that we're talking about that may have been simply rubber stamped in the past now are getting more scrutiny or asking different questions. Uh, so. I don't know necessarily that it's like, woo, you know, straight win. We got this. We got that. A lot of these things take a long time, but the conversation is starting to change. And for example, one of the things that we did just a few weeks ago uh, was we did pass a resolution that was unanimous uh, that Clark County would 
take meaningful and intentional steps to eliminate systemic racism, mm. taking a look internally and also at the larger community. And what were there more specifics around that, how you plan to do that, or was just more an overall statement that, like, yeah, this is going to be a focus and we'll figure out those steps a little bit later? It's more the, it's more the latter. Okay. Uh, you know, this resolution is largely just a, a statement of intent in many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Clark County, that's a big step forward. And what was the date that that passed? That was, I believe it was the 16th okay. of uh, June. Okay. And then the headlines of just last week, last Thursday, where that um, chair acquiring has stated that systemic racism doesn't exist in Clark County. So what happened between the 16th and your meeting last week? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be really uh, frank, I, I can't speak to what's in her head. Sure. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, we're not close. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, she did sign that resolution. She okay. did vote to approve it. So um, I think we were all quite surprised by her statements, both um, uh, the way she delivered them and what she delivered. I can't speak to what's going on with that, um, with that 180 on her mm-hmm. part, but uh, uh, regardless, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, while it's, while it's disturbing, um, the rest of the council is still on board, mm-hmm. and uh, we're still going to we're still going to keep moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, with news media, that that sort of headline is just you know gold. It's it's a it's clickbait. <laughs> Everyone's like, what? How could how could an elected official not recognize and acknowledge systemic racism is happening everywhere, including in Clark County? Um, but but to provide a little context, what was the conversation? Um, and I've, I've heard the the audio of, of your response and the exchange with with the chair. What was the topic that you all were discussing that then led to the statement that systemic racism doesn't isn't doesn't happen in Clark County? Sure. So what we were discussing was that the week prior. Uh, well, let me let me go back even further. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, uh, our sheriff purchased a number of uh, the thin blue line flag stickers Mm -hmm. that have um, differing, people have differing interpretations of them uh, for folks who are very much uh, within the law enforcement community and enmeshed in that. It is a, you know, they claim it's a, it's a show of solidarity, especially for officers who've died in the line of duty. Um, As we've heard from uh, especially members of our black and brown communities, uh, that is that flag is also often aligned with um, denial of rejection of protest against uh, Black Lives Matter and other protests against police brutality. So there's a lot of division, uh, depending on who you talk to with those. Uh, The sheriff bought those stickers um, to put on the backs of sheriff's vehicles. And at that time in 2016, Nobody batted an eyelash. Nobody, he, didn't, he didn't ask permission. He just went and did it. And um, members of the community did uh, uh, you know, complain, say, hey, is that appropriate to be on the back of a sheriff's vehicle? Um, but it, it really went unheard. And uh, most recently, though, the NAACP 
sent our sheriff a letter and copied members of the council and the county prosecutor um, outlining the reasons why uh, it's a problematic sticker to have on public vehicles and asking that they be removed. Mm-hmm. This was uh, that letter was sent on Thursday, the 18th, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, so also two days after we passed our resolution saying we were going to do something about systemic racism. And uh, and also um, the sheriff was scheduled to we'd arranged for him to present at our local NAACP's Juneteenth event on the 20th. Uh, and talk about the sheriff's office and uh, relationships and and what we can do moving forward. So um, that letter was sent. Uh, The sheriff, uh, to his credit, got the letter, recognized uh, recognized the moment that we're in and what the right thing to do should be, and on Friday uh, started to order those stickers coming off of the backs of the cars. Mm -hmm. And... uh, because there's a lot of cars and there's a lot of shifts. It's taken a while, but I think they're almost through getting them all off. Mm. And he then, in the, at the Juneteenth event, uh, shared that with the public and said, we are, we are doing that. Um, then the next week, last week, uh, because the letter from the NAACP was addressed to all of us, um, not just the sheriff, and because fleet vehicles are actually owned by the county under the purview of the county council. They're not really the sheriff's vehicles. Uh, I felt that this letter from the NAACP merited a response. Mm -hmm. So uh, drafted a support letter, basically a letter saying that we supported the action the sheriff took. We saw it as a good faith gesture to keep moving forward, to be able to have open and honest discussions because those Stickers are seen as a barrier to those discussions by many people in the community. So by removing that barrier, hopefully we can move forward. And that's what the letter said. Um, The rest of the council was very supportive of sending that letter and essentially ratifying uh, the actions of the sheriff to remove those stickers. But um, Chair Queering didn't agree with that. Councillor Lentz, how can folks who are listening best support your work for racial equity up in Clark County? You know, um, let us hear from you. Something that I've been saying since uh, since day one that I got elected was that we really do need to hear from the community. Often, uh, elected offices, you know, we don't we usually don't hear from folks unless they're pissed at us for something, mm-hmm. and I get it. <laughs> um, uh, but one of the one of the biggest tools that we have when wanting to talk about policy and change is this is something our community has said we want. And so when we hear from the community, we're able to say, okay, this needs to move forward. And there are going, I don't know what they are yet because we're still in the, in the beginning of this, but there are going to be opportunities for individuals to weigh in. There's always the opportunity to send us email and call us. And once we get through whatever stage of COVID we're in, hopefully come and see us in person again. Um, But there will also be opportunities to come and give us uh, your opinions and perspectives as we move forward. I do see that we will have committees and task forces that I want to have. My goal will be for them to not simply be uh, ceremonial, but that they'll actually have some teeth and they'll be making, making recommendations that the council can move forward with. We do broadcast our meetings. Our website is clark.wa.gov. And that's also where you can reach all of us via email. And 
let us know. I mean, after, um, after George Floyd was killed, we did start to hear from people immediately about the eight can't wait initiative, about what are we doing to ensure that something like that doesn't happen here. Mm. And the fact of the matter is that it probably will just statistically, but what can we do now (laughs) to, to, to try to shore it up, to try to start to attack any systemic racism, police brutality, whatever it is in our system now. Temple Lentz is counselor in Clark County. Temple, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks to Ben, Counselor Lentz, for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Please do subscribe and give a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.